Okay, good morning. <laughs> uh, so yes, yesterday was Tida and Christine's wedding. It was beautiful, really beautiful. And then Nick was, oh man, Nick was dancing. Nick was like going side to side, going down. I'm like, Nick, we need to talk about your pastoral road, Nick. <laughs> if you would please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, please raise up your hand and the ushers will bring one to you. So James chapter 4. Verse 1 to 10, James chapter 4. I'm going to attempt to recite it, so please (laughs) bear with me as I stumble through it. Uh, The reason I do that is to encourage us to keep meditating on the word, right? To memorize the word and to meditate on it and let that feed our souls. So James chapter 4, verse 1 to 10. The topic will be on desire, never thirsting again. I'm getting that from... Uh, the passage where Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well and saying, the water that you give me, if anyone drinks of it, they'll be thirsty again. But the water that I give, if you drink of that, you would never thirst again. So that's where that title is coming from. So James chapter 4, verse 1 to 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you ask wrongly or you ask amiss to spend it on your passions. O adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He who would be a friend of the world or he who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to know purpose? The scripture says he yearns jealously over a spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives more grace unto the humble. Submit yourself unto the Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near unto God and he will draw near unto you. Goes on to say, um, wash your hands, O you sinners, cleanse your heart, you double-minded, or purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then there's some strong words here. It talks about, you know, be wretched, weep, mourn, let your laughter turn into mourning, and let your joy turn into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, you have created us with desires, with longings, thirst. And truthfully, we will always be, we will always have this feeling of unrest, this restlessness until we find our rest in you. And so what we are praying for today, God, is that you will come down and give us your spirit to meet with this word. And you will reach into our hearts and you will satisfy all of our thirst, all of our desires. Where there is hurt, God, we are praying for healing. Where there is despair and discouragement, we are praying for empowerment. Where we are lost, God, we are praying for guidance. And most of all, we are praying for humility, that we will be humbled before you today, and that you will be exalted. And at the end of the day, as we go on with life, 
we will always be made aware, a consciousness of your love for us, that unrelenting love for us, that we will see your faithfulness and we will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the book of James is written to believers, right? You can see that from the short introduction. And then James launches right into how we live, right? He starts out by talking about affliction. I'm like, how do you start a book by talking about affliction and persecution, right? (laughs) So he launches right into that, very practical, right? Launches into asking for wisdom, expressing faith, how our desires uh, can go down this downward spiral of sin, right? And how we are not tempted by God, but tempted by desires. Talks about hearing the word, doing the word. So very practical, right? And it goes on like that. So it just... It goes right into the point. The reason I highlight that is I want you to be reflecting on this passage, right? I know at first it's possible for you to think, oh, this might not really touch me. But I want you to be reflecting on your choices, to be reflecting on how you make decisions, to be reflecting on even certain things you just do without thinking of it, right? And let God walk in you through that. One of the points I want to highlight also is that as, as much as James talks about what we do and how we act, he's more concerned about our hearts, though, because that's where everything comes from, right? So interwoven between all those commands and do this, don't do that, he always goes back to the heart, which we'll be looking at here as well. So I just want to be clear. Desires are good, right? God created us with desires and longings and thirst, and you see that in Scripture, right? It's always a theme. So when the psalmist would say, uh, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly do I seek you. I long for you. I thirst for you, right? That's all desire. So there's nothing wrong with desire. Desire is great. What I want to focus on today is the type of desires that have this ability to draw us away from God, right? And really, it's any desire, good or bad, that goes out of bounds. That is sometimes maybe we can call unrestrained desires where desires have this obsessive nature to simply run our lives. So that's what I want to look at today. Right, so just going forward, let me, let me start off by saying there are a couple of ways we deal with desires, and then I'll get into the text itself. Uh, one of the ways we deal with desires is we just simply give in to desires. Like we do everything that comes our way, whatever we think, right? Probably not a good approach. <laughs> Another way we deal with desires is we ignore them. That's not good as well, right? We're not Stoics. God created us with desires, with longings, right? Or we try to frustrate desires, which is also not a great idea, right? What I want you to hold on to is that today we want to be looking at how do we subordinate our desires to the greater good of the kingdom of God. So if we are giving up a certain desire, we are putting it within the appropriate context or appropriate restraint, it's because we see something greater, Something more satisfying in the kingdom of God. Right? So that's a theme I want you to hold on to as we walk through scripture today. To be thinking about and to be thinking about your decisions and your choices and how you frame your life and how you think about life. So let's get into it. So James chapter 4. I'm going to start from verse 1. I'm just going to walk through each verse really. So verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Right, so at the end of James chapter 3, James is talking about two types of wisdom, right? The godly wisdom and the earthly wisdom. 
and he, he talks about the godly wisdom and the fruit of that is peace. Right? He ends the chapter talking about peace in James chapter 3. So James chapter 4, he starts out by talking about the absence of peace right, in the community of believers, right, which is what he's honing upon. So the word pleasure here, the word passion, the word passion here actually means pleasure, is where we get that term hedonism, right, in the English term. That, that's what it means, right? And the root word for desire here is epithumia, which translates to this strong, this inordinate longing, right, this excessive longing. So when I'm talking about desire for the rest of the day, that's what I'm talking about, this excessive longing, inordinate longing, this, this idea that I have to have what I want when I want it. And it doesn't matter what else happens, but I have to get what I want. So that's what I'm going to be talking about for the rest of the day. So desires have this obsessive nature to them, right? By the very definition of desire, you want something and so you go after it. But the problem with desire is a lot of times it doesn't consider what is good or perhaps what is better, maybe what is best, right? And so that's why James talks about what is it that causes the quarrels, the fights, and really it's just our passions, our longings, our desire. Verse 2 talks about, verse 2 shows us something where he says, you know, you desire and do not have, so you murder, right? You covet and cannot obtain, so you quarrel and you fight. You see the obsessive nature of desire there where you simply go after what you want, right? It's, it's not looking at what is good. It's not looking at how it affects anyone else. It's this idea of I want this, and so I run after it, right? So that is the obsessive nature of desire. And, and like you all know, if we live lives that way, if, and, and I'll give an example, which I do this often, which I shouldn't. Sometimes I come home at night and I am tired. I should really go to bed because I'm going to work early the next morning. But I'm like, nah, I want to do something fun. <laughs> like, so let's go on Netflix and go watch something. And before I know it's 2 a.m., I'm like, oh, 2 a.m. And then I wake up at 6 the next day. I'm like, oh, God, please help me <laughs> to get to work. I would never do this again, but that's not true. <laughs> Very often the following night I do that again. <laughs> Not a good idea, but I'm trying. I'm working in New Year, new me. <laughs> but that's the obsessive nature of desire, right? It begins to run your life where you don't consider what is good, right? And so when James talks about you do not have, like you desire, you do not have, so you murder. A lot of times we think that is excessive. But when you think about it, if you're driving down the freeway, like me, if you're running to a meeting that you're late for because you slept late and didn't wake up early enough, right? And someone is slow on the freeway for no reason. At that point, you're just like, just get out of the way. I wish someone would just push you out of my way. <laughs> right? That's part of it. Right? That, that's that longing going the wrong way. Right? And, and that's where it starts. You know, it seems like it's not a big deal, but it is, because that's where it starts. When you get into things more serious, like your career path and what you want and what you believe you deserve, whether that is true or not, right? We begin to get into this thing where we can push people to the side and step all over them, right? And so basically, it's this idea, this longing that I want what I want when I want it, and I'm going to get it no matter what. 
Right. So verse three actually shows us something funny. It says, "You you do not." Sorry, verse two. I should go back to verse two. It says, um, "You do not have because you do not ask." The end of verse two. Right, and that's something key for us to look at. A lot of times, like Nick said last week, we bend inwards when we have a desire for something. We don't actually ask. We don't actually seek maybe what God might want. We don't even see maybe God can satisfy that desire, which out our longing. We have this tendency to bend inwards and try to solve that issue by ourselves. Right. But what God is calling us to is to always be in this place where we can go to him and ask whatever you want to ask. Right. And that is part of my encouragement to you today, that whenever there is a desire, ask God. Don't keep God at the fringes of your life. Let us not become functional atheists. What I mean by that is, again, if you're like me, you might wake up, pray in the morning, you know, say your quick prayers, run out of the door. And the rest of the day, you just go about doing things the way you would normally do it. Right? No real stepping back every now and then. And saying, God, what would you want me to do in this situation? Right? So that's what I'm calling functional atheists. We believe God is able and God is powerful. But a lot of times, we don't bring him into our situation. Funny story. I don't like turbulence in planes. Right? (laughs) If you really want to see me pray, (laughs) view me on a plane ride where there's turbulence. (laughs) So I'm flying to Nigeria about five years ago, right? And, you know, everybody's seated, everything is fine, no seatbelt sign, everybody's walking around. And we're about, we're about two hours from Lagos, which is where I live in Nigeria, and we're over the Sahara Desert, right? And we hit this clear air turbulence, as they call it, and the plane just goes up and down, like just real crazy. Now, it lifts me up my seat. People that are walking are falling down. You know, people are lining up to go to the bathroom. They are staggered. They're falling down. So I'm sitting almost by the aisle, right? There's a lady sitting by the window. So she's outstanding. So I think she staggered or she sort of stumbled and fell down, right? So she literally ran over me. Like she climbed over me and jumped into her seat. Like it was that scary. And then she jumped into her seat and she was like this, like covering herself. And then she started praying. And then she noticed <laughs> I had a Bible in my hand. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> when there's turbulence, I don't play. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> but there was a Bible in my hand that sort of flew up and down. She's like, open to Psalm 121. Open to Psalm 121. I just gave her the Bible. I'm like, take it. <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> but it was real. <laughs> Within me, I was praying like, God, Sahara Desert? If we land here, how do I get home? Somehow I was thinking, no matter what happens, I'm going to survive. I was thinking, how do I get home <laughs> from the Sahara Desert? But I tell you that story just to point that we can always trust in God. right? Even when things do not go right. I believe Nick touched on this last week. That one of the themes in scripture is that the past faithfulness of God ensures current and future faithfulness, right? And it's something we have to continually lean on and rest on. And every time we hit that situation where you have a desire, a longing, let us try to continue to trust God by placing that desire underneath the will of God.
And what I mean by that is ask God for what you want. It's okay to ask, right? Ask God for what you want. Let us be people that trust God more and more. So verse 3 says, you ask and you do not receive, right? We're talking about asking. Because you ask amiss or you ask wrongly to spend on your passion. Remember the word passion there means pleasure, where we get the word hiddenism, right? So what he's saying is a lot of times we ask things and we ask again just to fulfill our longings and our desires. And sometimes we don't contemplate how does this look with the will of God? How does this jive with the will of God, right? Um, a, a lot of times when we pray, at the end we, we add the name, we add the phrase in Jesus' name, right? Uh, where I'm from, we say in Jesus' name with every sentence. Father, Lord, dear Jesus, in Jesus' name, we just keep saying in Jesus' name. Um, but what we should be doing when we say in Jesus' name, is we should be thinking, how are my prayers aligned with the will and the purpose of God? Right? This is what I mean. I'm not saying every situation you face, you're going to find you know, an exact replica in the Bible where you can pull off principles. Not necessarily. But there are principles that you can pull to apply to your life. Case in point, you have two job opportunities. One pays you higher. Let's say job A pays you, you know, 50 grand more. Right? Uh, let's say job B is okay, right? How do you make a choice? Job A might provide you with all the career progression you want, and it might be the right job to go for, so don't get me wrong. I'm not saying because it looks great, don't go for it. No, it might be the right thing to go for, right? But I would also want you to think about how would the commitment to this job affect me? If you have a family, how would it affect my family? How would it affect my time with God? How would it affect having time to look at myself and reflect and see where God is taking me? Right, so when we think of all those other things, principles from Scripture, right? that's what I mean when I say consider your prayers and what you desire and what you long for. How does it align with the Word of God? Right? That's what I mean. Obviously, certain things are clear cut. Right? Like Nick should not be dancing at weddings. That's clear cut in Scripture. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Nick can dance. <laughs> Nick can dance. Um, so again, when we pray, when we ask, like he says, we ask amiss to spend on our passions. I could be asking for spiritual maturity, and I could simply be asking that so that I am respected or acknowledged. That's wrong. Right? Because what I'm really after is my status. Right, So I could be asking for something that on the surface looks good, but really the heart behind it is what matters. And that's what we should be checking even as we pray, even as we come before God. Let prayer be a learning space for you where you are able to take your request to God, but you're also willing to open your hands right? and let God take whatever he wants to take. Let him give whatever he wants to give. Let us be people that our hearts are always so open before God. So that like Jesus in Gethsemane, right? He can say, if it be possible, let this cup pass over me. And then he adds, but not my will be done, right? Thy will be done. That's submission to God, right? And why do we submit to God? The reason we do that, Right? Why am I saying we should subordinate our desires to God? The reason we do that 
is that whatever God will give you will always be far greater. That is always the case at every point in every situation. Even if you do not get what you want, what he will give you will always be far greater. So let me put that in context. And really what he has given you is already far greater. Let me put that in context. In eternity past, God has selected you to be his bride, to be in fellowship with him. Right? Because we believe in Christ, justification by faith. We know what eternity future will look like. So what he has given you is already beyond anything you want or desire. If that is true, let us be willing to trust God with whatever it is we have for the 120, 130 years we live in this life. (laughs) It's a lot of years. It's a lot of years. (laughs) But let us develop this eternal perspective to things. Like it's okay if I don't get that job or the home. It's okay. Doesn't mean it's not painful, right? We, We face that. We speak to God about that. But it's okay. If God would die on the cross for me, Really, what's a home that he wouldn't give you if that's the right thing to give you at that time? And that doesn't mean he still won't give you. Right? So we, we subordinate our desires to the greater good of the kingdom of God or what God gives because what he gives is always far better, far greater. Right? Verse 4 is quite humbling. He says, oh, adulterous people. Right? And that, that should be humbling because that addresses all of us. You see, a lot of times the relationship with God is depicted as a marriage, right? And so he uses that phrase adultery to show that we basically cheated on God, we've rebelled against God, right? And he says, do you not know that friendship with the world? Friendship with the world there means you are giving into your unrestrained desires. Desires are running amok in your life, right? There are no bounds to the things you desire. Right, that's what friendship with the world in that context would mean. Right, the world there would represent the value systems of this world, the mindset, the perspectives of the culture around us that is set against God. And truthfully, if you look at it, superficiality is like the curse of our age. Right, with, with social media, if you're like me, sometimes you put something on there, you're looking at how many people like that? How many people said something about that? What are they saying about that? All of that is problematic. Right, because then you have to think about why are you putting stuff up. Right? So, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It isn't that God is saying, I dislike you, you're my enemy right now. It's that we are saying, God, I have a better way to go. And so I don't want your way. And in a sense, you are my enemy. Right? So it's a humbling passage for us. And... Uh, you know, when unrestrained desires take control of our lives, we tend to define ourselves by three key things. I'm going to run through it quickly. The first one is we tend to define ourselves by what people say about us, right? Because we are longing for acknowledgement and for acceptance. And when that becomes overpowering, we live our lives based on what people will say or what people might say, right? We tend to define our lives, the second thing, by what we have accomplished or what we have amassed. Right? We look at our lives based on our possessions. This is why Jesus would challenge, I think, a young man and say to him that your life does not consist in what you possess, in your possessions. Right? And thirdly, especially for us here in the valley, we tend to define our lives by what we are currently doing or engaging in. 
our significance, what makes me important, what makes me respected and valued, right? When we define our lives by those three things, which in a sense we all do, which is why this is humbling, well, in a sense I do, let me not speak for everybody, <laughs> which is why I think this is humbling. Um, desires are beginning to run amok in our lives, that's what that means. So let me jump to my second heading here, because as desires begin to run amok in our lives, what we find out is there will be, according to James chapter 3, verse 16, when we have unrestrained desires, there will be selfish ambition and jealousy there, because sometimes you don't get what you want, so you fight to get that. And wherever there is selfish ambition and jealousy, there will be all kinds of evil there, right? James 3.16. So what then do we do? How do we deal with this? Right? Verse 5 speaks on that. Right? So verse 5 says, Or oh, do you suppose it's to no purpose the scripture says he yearns jealously over his spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Right? Again, this is when we say jealousy, so let me quickly say something about that. Right? It is not that God is jealous of you. I know. Don't think too highly of yourself. <laughs> God is not jealous of you. The almighty sovereign king of kings could not possibly be jealous of you. But God is jealous for you. So what I mean by that is if you have a father that says his toddler should sort of walking into a ditch, and the father runs right after that, the toddler, right, to save that toddler from the ditch. Right? So in that sense, the father is jealous for the safety of the toddler. That's what we mean here. Where we say he yearns, right, over his spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And this will go into the next verse to give us our solution, which is he gives more grace. So you see, in light of our adultery, in light of our rejection of God, God gives more grace. Right? So think about that, though. Think about that for those who are married. Think about that betrayal. And we just don't do it once. We do it almost all the time. It's like a near constant thing where we keep rejecting God. And he must know this, right? If he's truly all-sufficient, omniscient, all-knowing, he must know that we will reject him time and time and time after. But how does he respond with that? to that? He responds by giving his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us so that we can be reconciled to him. Right, so what you see here is God is always yearning for you, longing after you, because you are important to him. See, there is no sin that is too depraved or no amount of sin that is too just depraved for God to handle. See, there is no distance from God that is too far away. There is no situation that is too complex that God will not willingly Step into to save you, to be with you, to be there for you. Of course, he will not run over you, but he will not impose upon you. But he is always, always longing after you. No matter where you are, no matter what you are facing, God longs to be with you. God longs to stand with you and be by your side. You see, if Christ would die for you, while you did not know him, right? Because scripture says Christ died for us while we were yet still sinners, right? In Romans, Romans 5, I think. If he would die for you 
and go through all of that while you did not know him. Imagine now that you know him or have an inkling of him, what extent he would go to for you. Right? So there is no situation too complex for God. Right? And that's the turning point in this passage. God gives more grace, but he gives more grace. Right? And so he says, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. So I'm under the second heading here where I'm talking about the wine that never runs out. And that grace abounds. So the wine that never runs out is Christ. He always gives more grace. And I use that phrase, the wine that never runs out, because that is what satisfies our longings, our desires, so that we do not thirst again. Right. So this is the turning point of our story. God gives more grace. But what does that, what does that grace mean? I think the next statement talks about that. I said, Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives more grace unto the humble. So the grace that God offers is the grace of humility. And I'll explain that a little bit. You see, I'm sure you have many definitions for grace. I'm going to add one more to it. Grace is God coming to help you do what you cannot by yourself do. Right? So the grace of humility is God helping you. To see your need for him. Now why is that important? If you don't see your need for God. If you don't see your need for help. You will simply continue to choose according to your desires. Right? You see, it it is those who are sick. Those who see that they cannot by themselves figure out this journey called life. That go to God. And the reason that's important, the reason humility is important, is that it's what makes you open to God. It's what makes you say, God, how about we try your way? Since I've tried my way for the last X number of years and it hasn't worked out. How about we actually try your way? You see, there's humility that helps you to continue to submit to God. Because it's not a one-time thing, right? It's a process that we go through. So a couple of things about... Um, Again, still speaking on humility. And you could ask the question, why does God choose the way of humility? Uh, Maybe it's better for me to explain maybe why God opposes pride so much. And then that might show us why God chooses humility. Now, pride. Favorite sin. Pride. Um, At its core, pride is idolatry. Because it seeks to elevate your desires. We go back to that. What you want, how you feel, what you want to get above everything else. And it blindfolds you to your need for God. That is what pride is. At the end of the day, it blindfolds you to your need for God. Is it pride sort of builds you up, it grooms you to rely on yourself rather than God. Pride says to you that you cannot accept what you have not worked for. Because you just feel like. You know, if I don't work for it, it's not something I can take, you know. We, we think it's humility, but it's false humility. Right? So pr- pride is having this view that I am old in life. I deserve A, B, C, D, E. How could this happen to me? Rather than seeing life as a gift from God. Pr- pride is avoiding 
acknowledging that you are not in control. When you avoid acknowledging that you are not in control, that's pride. And the reason we do that is because the moment you admit you are not in control, it necessitates you finding who is in control and submitting to that person. Right? But we pride like, no, no way. But you see, humility, the way of humility, well, there's this phrase that says, humility or meekness knows its own limitations. And because of that, you are willing to submit to God. You are willing to go the way of God. You are willing to say, God, I'm not in control. I don't know what I'm doing, which I think you can't guess from me rambling all over, but hopefully I'll get somewhere. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going somewhere. And I would rather take your path. You see, humility is saying, God, I don't know myself. I don't see the road before me. I don't even know where it leads to. And the fact that I think I'm doing your will doesn't actually mean I'm doing your will. That's humility. That's that submitting to God and saying, help me. I need help. And that pleases God because the desire to please God does in fact please God. The desire to please God does in fact please God. And that is why God would choose the way of humility. So you see, it is the desperados, those who get that they can help themselves, that grasp the truth that I cannot be at the center of my world. I cannot be the ultimate reference point to what I do. Because it would only go back to my desires. I would only do what I feel like doing when I feel like doing it. And only put in whatever minimal effort I feel like putting in. And you all know this. What do you really achieve in life by just doing things when you want to do it? Like, what do you really make progress in? They say, you know what? I'm just going to do that whenever I want to do it. I'm just going to wake up whenever I want to wake up. You don't achieve anything through that way. It's the same thing with God. So you see, those who accept the grace of God, this grace of humility, this grace of knowing I cannot help myself, are those who have a place to stand against desires, so that desires don't simply wash over you or run all over you, right? It's those who understand this, because they are the ones that then go to Jesus and say, I need help. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life, right? He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. That phrase. Never thirst again. Right. So at the end of the day, we always run back to God. So in practical terms, what am I talking about? And then I'll get into some of what we can do. Right. So rather than giving to my desire to withdraw and not be bothered by the plight of others across any divide, whether that be racial, gender, or whatever, or status, or societal strata, see, we come to see in everyone the image of God. We honor that and we point them to God. See, rather than the desire to give in to lust, greed, jealousy, whatever the case may be, when I submit to God, when I am humble, when I put myself under God, when I put my desires under the greater good of the kingdom of God, right, then I come to choose love over lust because I value the person, the image of God. 
Right? I choose humility over pride. I choose contentment over greed because I know God will take care of me. The greater good of the kingdom of God. Right? Rather than my desire to hurt and be vengeful when I am hurt, I see the greater good that says hurt people. Hurt people will hurt other people. So when I see how people hurt me, I understand there is something else there. And again, I am trying to point them to God. right? And even as I'm doing that, hopefully I begin to see the embers of moral superiority in my own life. And I can repent of that. So you see, humility has this effect on you. Where it just continuously uncovers things within you. And you are continuously putting yourself in this place where God can reach you. Where you can receive from God, let me put it that way. Where you are open to what he is saying. So rather than my desire to be known and heralded and acknowledged, I come to see my identity as a beloved child of God. See, so my identity is not in what people say about me, what I've accomplished or what I've amassed. And it's not in what I am doing or what is my significance. My identity is simply in I'm a beloved child of God. Right, it, it, it lets you be settled and have that peace James talks about at the end of chapter 3. You can offload your desires to God. Your, your desires for your kids, good desires that they should grow up and be great kids. Your desire for marriage, to have kids, to do well in life, whatever the desires might be. You can simply offload that to God because you know God is your shepherd and his abundant provision never runs out. The wine that never runs out. So the wine that never runs out is always Jesus. The grace God offers is that grace of humility, that grace of being submitted to him so that we can see the way of God. So how then do I become someone that never thirsts again? This is where we get into the more practical stuff, right? How do I become the person that is satisfied by the living waters? I remember that verse I quoted in John, I think it's 6.35, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. Right? I am the bread of life. And so we're going to take our cues from the rest of James chapter 4, verse 7 to 10. Right? So verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to the Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit yourself therefore unto the Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So point number one, how do I become the person? That is not ran here and there by my desires, right? Where my thirst is always satisfied by God. I submit to God. It's what we've been talking about, right? But how do we submit to God? This is the discipline of abandoning yourself to God, right? I I choose the word discipline because I want you to see that it is a continuous thing. It's a lifelong process that we continue to do, right? So how do we do that? How can you submit to someone you don't know? Right, so we go back again to studying the word. How do you submit the word to God? You get into the word. You meditate on the word. Right, you develop that discipline of meditation. So I'm going to do something right now. Peter, you see, he raises up his head. Right, and when I said Peter, a lot of you actually looked that way. Right, so I want to draw out something from there. I said, Peter, he raises up his head. Why? 
because there has been a repetition of that name associated with him over time. So it's instant. If he was in Nigeria where he doesn't understand the language and someone shouts Peter, he's going to turn around. Even where he's not expecting anybody to be there. Right? So the key thing there is the repetition, the consistency. When I also said Peter, a lot of you look there because he usually sits somewhere around there. Again, repetition, right? consistency. What I'm driving at is this. The way we get truth into ourselves is by repetition. There has to be a consistency with the word of God. There has to be a consistency with knowing God. If you don't know God, you can't submit to him. You see, in knowing him, in the consistency of getting into his word, and I'm choosing specifically the word because that's the best way to know him, what is written about him, what he has revealed. Right? There has to be a consistency to our interaction with God. Right, so I'm just choosing the word of God as one of the disciplines. There are many ways you can get to know God. But I'm choosing this and honing on this because it necessitates the meditation on the word of God. We have to meditate. Like repetition makes Peter perk up because of that name. When I say meditate, I just mean think about it. Repeat it. Memorize scripture. Walk with it. Every now and then just bring it back to mind. What does this mean? Talk about it. Right, so repetition helps you know God, thereby you are more liable to submit to God. And as you get the truth of God into your heart, then you stand in a place when you can resist the enemy. So that when I was talking about some examples there, so that when the desire of being known and being appreciated and being respected come at the expense of other people, I can stand in a place because I know God and I've submitted to him, I'm getting into the word. I can stand in a place and say, no. I don't need that. It doesn't define me. Why? Because my identity is I'm a beloved, beloved, very much loved child of God. I don't need to perform. I don't need to prove anything. I can stand in the fact that I am loved by God. Right. So submitting to God. Critical. We do that by getting to know God. Verse 8 talks about draw near unto God and he will draw near to you. Right? What that means is we are serious about our pursuit of God. Right? And that ties in right into submitting to God. We are serious about our pursuit of God. And how are we serious about our pursuit of God? By you being here today. Right? By having community around you. Make a commitment to have community. People you talk to, people you do life with. Again and again, I can't say this enough. Carve out time with God. Let there be a consistency to your time with God. That is how we draw near unto God. Go into scripture. You know, sometimes rather than buy whatever it is you want to buy, take a piece of that money. Buy a book. And if you don't like reading, you know, maybe listen to someone. Do something that helps you interact with God. You know, buy a book, read a book, a book that really gets to the core of things. Read it through the year. You don't have to read five books a year. No, read one. Read one, practice. If you want to go a little bit deeper, I know sometimes you don't like it, but buy a commentary on a book in the Bible and study. Study for three years, whatever. Look at it whenever you have a question in the verse. 
but have resources that helps you dig into God more. Right, so we draw near unto God until he draws near unto us. And of course, you have to know that it's God that gives you the desire to draw near unto him. We talked about grace the other time. right? It's God that gives you that desire to draw near unto him. And maybe another thing about grace I should say is that grace is never opposed to effort. Sometimes we have this idea that, oh, if the grace of God is there, then it means I don't have to do anything. No. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning this attitude that I've earned this. Grace is not opposed to effort or else James will not say submit to God. He's putting the onus on you. Submit to God. Draw near unto God. Resist the devil. Right? The onus is on you. Right? So effort. We do exert effort. But we don't exert effort in our own strength. We depend on God. And when we submit to God, when we resist the devil, you might ask yourself, why do we resist? Because as you resist, you are trained to depend more and more on God. You are trained to trust in God more. So I'm talking about turbulence, right? The more I go through that, the more I calm myself down. I say, Tulu, don't freak out and jump out of the plane. (laughs) The more I can be at rest and... Maybe when I'm faced with this idea of maybe lying on my taxes to get my money back, I can say no. Because I'm being trained somewhere else to trust in the will of God, to trust in the provision of God. And so I can settle more in that. That's why, we, that's why the onus is put on you, resist the enemy. What that means is engage in the process, fight. But again, we fight as one dependent on the strength of God, not on ourselves. Right? So the next verse is a little bit, you know, like I said, it's very strong. James talks about um, be wretched. Well, actually, before I go there, it says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Right? We're talking about how do I not thirst again? Repentance is critical because we are broken. Right? So we talked about we submit to God. Underneath that, we resist the enemy because we get the truth of God into ourselves. We have a place to stand. Right? We draw near unto God. We are serious about our pursuit of God. The next thing is we repent. Repentance is all of life. We are broken people. We have issues. Right? This is the discipline of reflecting on your day. Seeing where you snapped at someone or where you felt like pushing someone. Or where you were shocked at how you were cursing someone in your mind. <laughs> right? But we repent. We go back to God. Because we know he loves us. There is no situation that is going to shock him. He knows already. He knew before you were born. Right? So we go back. It's a discipline. We always go back. Right? Repentance is all of life. And when he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's a two-pronged approach to that. There's the external approach. There's also the internal. Right? That's why he talks about purify your hearts. Right? He talks to, he's talking about both your deed, your action, and the disposition of your heart. So, cleanse your hands, you sinners, right? So that can seem like behavior modification, but no, what powers that is purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded there, he's referring back to this idea of friendship with the world, right? And still trying to be friends with God, which is not possible, right? You have divided loyalties, Right. And what that is going back to again within this context is unrestrained desires running your life. Double minded means on one hand I'm trying to look to God, but I'm also trying to have my plans and do things my way and get what I want when I want it. 
rather than trusting in the wine that never runs out. And then verse 9. It says, be wretched, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Still talking about repentance, but it's kind of heavy. Be wretched, mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn into mourning and your joy into gloom. So I'm going to just read from a commentary here to help us with that passage. Because laughter in this context is going back to this idea of just doing what you want, getting what you want whenever you want it, right? So that's the context. It's not saying that laughter is bad, right? It's not saying joy is bad. It's just saying within this context where you do things your way, you run your life your way, repent. Come back to God. So let me quickly read. James is no kill joy, denying any place for laughter and joy in the Christian life. But laughter in the Old Testament and Judaism is often the scornful laughter of the fool. Ecclesiastes 7.6 Who blithely refuses to take sin seriously. It is the mark of one who prospers in this world without regard for the world to come. So when he says, be wretched, mourn and weep, you have context for that now. Right? Let me go on. See, for this reason, Jesus warned, woe to you that laugh now. Right? For you shall mourn and weep. So again, laughter in that context is the person who prospers in this world by their own strength, in their own way, how they want to do it, without any regard to God. Right? What men will do when God's judgment overtakes them can be avoided if they mourn and weep for sin now, repentance. This is why Jesus would also say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who repent, who are able to see these sins, who are humble enough to see that they need God. So many people in our day, both outside the church and within it, are marked by superficial joy and brutal laughter. They leave the hiddenist philosophy, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. And they ignore the terrifying reality of God's judgment. See, but even the committed Christian can slip into a casual attitude towards sin. We can have what we sometimes call pet sins. It's this idea of God understands. Perhaps presuming too much on God's forgiving and merciful nature. It is also to such people that James issues this plea for a radical, thorough repentance. It's not that we won't sin. It's not that we are perfect. No, we will always sin. I mean, at least on this side of eternity, right? But the call is for repentance, the going back to God. The fight and sin. So I hope you see in this statement the continuity of having a broken heart and a contrite heart before God. I hope you're seeing that the grace of humility that God provides is where you can stand and resist or reject unrestrained desires so that desires do not run your life amok. So to summarize, desires are good in and of themselves, generally. Right? But desires can have this obsessive nature to them where they tend to run over our lives and they tend to dictate how we do. Desires by their very obsessive nature, they do not consider what is good. It is simply, I want what I want. Desire has this tendency to make you feel like, I have to get that thing. And if I don't get it somehow, the world is not okay, which is not true. Right? And so our solution to that is we always run back to the wine that never runs out. Jesus, 
This is why Jesus would say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Meaning, unfulfilled or unrestrained desires will not run your life. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. He's saying the exact same thing. And how do we become this people? Well, we know God gives grace. and That grace is that of humility. How do we become this people? We submit to God. How do we submit to God? You can't submit to the one you do not know, so you get more and more into the word. Meditate on scripture. Right? I have like a homework thing there. You can go through it. Be more reflective. Get time with the word. You know, start with something you know. Psalm 23. Memorize it. Meditate upon it. You see, if we truly believe that the Lord is our shepherd, if we truly just believe that statement, and we believed it fully and all, at all times, life will be remarkably different. If we truly just believe that one phrase, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But how do you believe that? You meditate, you get it on your inside. And so by holding on to that truth, you are submitting to the way of God. You have a place to stand to resist the enemy. We draw near unto God. We are serious about our pursuit with God. We have our time for community. right? We make commitment to spend time with God. Right, it could be fasting, solitude, silence, whatever works for you, whatever disciplines work for you, how you get with God. Right? We repent. All of life is repentance. We continually go to repent. And here, here's why it's okay to, we can be very settled and comfortable in going back to repent to God, no matter how many times you commit the sin. Here's why. You see, on one hand, you are more sinful and depraved. That you can even begin to understand. But you see, on the other hand, God knows. He knew this before he sent Christ to die for you. And so you are more loved than you can ever dare to hope. Repentance isn't about telling God what he doesn't know. It's an invitation for God to touch you where you hurt. To embrace you. To empower you. To let you know he's still for you and he loves you. That's what repentance is about. God knows already. Repentance is you admitting you are weak and you are in need of God's help. Repentance is you putting yourself underneath God. It is submitting to God. So you see how all of these things are interwoven. Right? And so and at the end of the day, verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord. And he will exalt you. Trust in God. Do things the way of God. Rest in Him. And he will exalt you. He will care for you. He is the wine that never runs out. He will always take care of you. Right? And I'm not just talking about the material things you get in this world. I'm talking about everything. Right? Eternity past, eternity future. He will rest in you. Let's pray. He will take care of you, sir. Let's pray. Father, we do seek to be satisfied by you. The wine that never runs out. We long to be filled with you. For you are the bread of life. Help us God. Please help us. We have no strength by our own self. We have no ability really by ourselves to determine the course of our lives. But we come humbly before you today. Help us to submit to you. To get into your word. Give us the desire to know you, to long for you, to thirst after you. Grow us up in you, God. 
Help us know you. Help us see your faithfulness. Help us be comforted that your faithfulness to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the children of Israel, to the apostles, your faithfulness in sending Christ to die for us ensures your current and future faithfulness to us so that we can rest in you. And I'm praying that um, we will always fill our hearts with you. We will always be settled in you. That when we think of desires or giving up our desires, we will think back to the parable of the man that found gold in a field. And then he went and he sold everything he has to purchase that gold. A man that does that to purchase that field, sorry. A man that does that is not sad. A man that does that is not thinking, oh, this is so hard. No. It's a man that sees something greater. And so he's willing to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. In Jesus' name, amen.